want to welcome you for visiting with us today. I uh, want to welcome you back if uh, you're a regular attending member of Christ Community Church. We are finishing our First Peter series in the next three Sundays. Today, next week, and then we'll do a final uh, sermon in two weeks. A.J. Babel will be preaching next Lord's Day. I had intended to take the Sunday off for graduation weekend um, for Lena, and we don't have graduation, we don't have family coming to town, but A.J.'s been preparing to preach next week, and so I'll be here with you, but I'm eager to have him uh, be preaching next Lord's Day. And then just a little bit of a window into where we may go. During the month of June, what A.J., Bill, and myself will do is, is preach various texts from the Psalms or wisdom literature at least over the course of June. In July and a little bit into August, we're going to go through the short pro pro prophetic book of Jonah. And then, Lord willing, we, and we may adapt all this, but Lord willing, in the fall, start going through the book of Acts to build on what we've looked at in John, to build on what we've looked at in 1 Peter, and then to enter into a picture of the New Testament church where God's Holy Spirit was so actively forming his people and transforming the world by the beautiful, simple gospel of the resurrection of Jesus and the hope that's ours in Christ. So uh, just anticipate that. But let me ask you now this morning to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. I'll read from verses 1 through 5. Allow me to say this. Um, I recorded the testimony this week that you can go home and listen to. Some of you already told me you watched it this morning. Part of that was because the, the word that is going to be read here is Peter's exhortation to elders, to pastors. And uh, just, it ends up being about 11 minutes of too much of Jim's face and talking. However, some of you know a little bit of our story, some of you don't know my story, but it, I just try to encapsulate 20 years of pastoral ministry and how this text comes to bear. And I, and I joked with Julia this morning that one of the reasons maybe I needed to do that is so I wouldn't vomit this morning trying to preach from this text. Because these are very real words. If you're an elder in this church, or if you've been an elder ordained in the church, this is an exhortation for you from Peter, a fellow elder who walked with Jesus. If you're a lay person in the church, this is a direct exhortation for you about God's system, his picture of shepherding leadership, shepherds who are under shepherds of Jesus for you. And so this is a very direct exhortation from a very personally uh, um, intense, I think, a very deep Peter, and would God bless us now as we hear it. So let me ask you to stand if you would. I'll read verses 1 through 5 of First Peter chapter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of God. Father, would you help us now as we open your word? Would your spirit that you've not taken from us, but you put into us if we are your children, would your spirit help us to understand the beauty of this text? Why it matters for our, our church and, and, and your church here in this place 
why it matters from the lips of Peter, from the, the pen of Peter, if you will. Lord, give us understanding that applies by your Spirit's help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, in any form of communication, there are two things that are very important. There's many things that are important, but two things are very important. When you interact with another person, it's important to understand what is being communicated and why it is being communicated. And one without the other will truncate connection between two persons very, very grievously oftentimes. If we understand what someone says, but we don't take the time to fathom why did they say it, we haven't necessarily truly communicated with them. Oftentimes, how communication happens is not linked to what needs to be said, but why a person is saying it. Maybe that's why a person's amped emotionally or, or reserved and, and pulled back. It's not because of what they have to say, it's why they need to say it. So I want you to understand with me that in this text here, it would, it's good for us to say, what is Peter saying? But it's better for us to start by saying, why? Why does Peter, in the final chapter of his letter to the church, which of course we know didn't have chapters in its original, but his last section, why does Peter really take a hard turn? For example, did you know that the word church is not used in this letter? The Greek word ekklesia is not used in this letter. Peter has been writing to the scattered church across Asia Minor. He's been writing to Christians in general about their being sojourners, about exile, about their suffering. Nowhere has he said anything about church government or about a local church. Why does he choose to culminate his letter with a very direct word to shepherds of local contexts where sheep are scattered across Asia Minor? We need to ask why, and that's what we're going to try to do first. And so you have an outline in front of you. And I want to start out by talking about why these words come to us from a broken and a restored Peter. Right? Because actually in verse 1 of chapter 5, it's the most personal sentence in the entire book of, uh, the entire epistle that we've looked at. He says, I exhort you as a fellow elder. He, he gives a self-description that he's an elder in Christ's church. He's an apostle also. He says, I was a witness of the sufferings of Jesus. I was there. I, I, I suffered with him. I also tried to stop him from suffering. But I was a witness of it. Then third, he's a partaker of the glory that's about to be revealed. So he's with us in our journey of faith. He's anticipating. And if we look at the beginning of 2 Peter, we know that he knows his time is coming to a close very quickly. So he's also at the end of his life. It's a very, very personal description that should perk our ears up to, why does he say this? So in your outline, I wrote down, uh, we need to understand why this would be said to us from a broken and a restored Peter. Why does Peter go here? Well, first of all, he has to personally. He has to personally. And here's what I mean by that. This is a loaded, loaded thing for Peter because of the very last interaction he had with the resurrected Jesus. Why does he have to include this in this letter? Because this thought of shepherding the flock of God that's under his care has been on his mind and his heart since the moment where he missed the mark when Jesus was suffering and he denied him three times to the moment that Jesus revealed himself on the, on the side of the sea, cooked breakfast for them. John chapter 21, the resurrection scene where they realize it's Jesus and they end up at the shore of the disciples and Jesus pulls Peter aside. When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, notice he used his old name, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? 
Whether that means, as we looked in the Gospel of John, does that mean you love Jesus more than you love your brothers? Or do you love me more than they love me? Either way, Simon, is your love as deep for me as you think it is? Jesus says, well, Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said it to him a third time. And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. I just want you to picture with me how that held Peter till the very last breath that God ordained for him to have before him seeing Jesus face to face. Feed my sheep. I'm giving you a calling. Three times he denied his suffering and crucified Jesus. Three times he was called out and instructed by the resurrected Christ. Bible commentaries as well as books will call this, you know, sort of the restoration of Peter or the recommissioning of Peter. And, and that's where Jesus says, follow me unto a death like my own. So there's two things Peter knew from that last interaction with Jesus that we have actual recording is his last interaction with Jesus. Be a shepherd of the flock that I'm going to send you to and expect to suffer and die the way that you've seen me suffer and die. That's it, Peter. So when Peter comes to this part in his letter, he has to go here personally. It is the core of the man whose letter we've been reading. I want you to know that. There's so much depth here. So much depth here. And so I want to read a quote that I also read regarding in John 21 where Jesus links, Peter, do you love me with shepherding my flock? Those two things are integrally linked in John 21. Here's what Clowney says in his commentary. Just a helpful theologian says this. He says, the, the care of pastors for their flock will be proportional to their care of the Lord. Love for Christ will kindle compassion for Christ's scattered sheep, the little ones for whom he died. If you're an elder in this church, if, if you're the one speaking right now, love for Jesus will be proportional to the desire you have to love and shepherd the flock that's under your care. Why else does Peter go here? He has to practically, I don't want to say a lot here, but as I've been doing kind of additional reading through the Bible, like read through the Bible in a year, I'm in the Old Testament. Some of you do that. Do you know how dismal is the failure of the leaders across history among God's covenant people? Do you know how messed up the flock becomes when the shepherds reject and rebel from the role that God's put them in? Do you realize that just as Nathan once had to say to David, David, the story I'm telling you about a man who steals another person's only sheep, I'm talking about you. You stole Bathsheba's husband, I mean, you stole Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and you had him murdered. I'm talking about you and your dismal failure as a shepherd. That's King David. What about Saul before David, who just did nothing but take from the people? What about Eli and his sons who were the priests in the temple there at Shiloh and they were doing things for their own benefit and eating what they wanted to eat and sleeping with the women who'd come to the temple? Dismal failure and the word of God was absent from his people as long as the leaders were so 
selfish in promoting and serving themselves and so rejecting of God's holiness and his set-apart call for their life. So Peter has to go here personally, but he has to also go here practically. As leaders go, so go the people whom they lead. If you're an elder here with me, if you're an officer in this church with, with me, if you've been an elder but you're not ordained here but you're an elder in Christ's church, as you go, as I go, as we go, so go the people of God. And if we're just, just a, a little degree off from the clarity and the purposefulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that alone, so go the people. So Peter has to go here practically. Thirdly, Peter has to go here, I'll just say biblically, it's not the best description, but think of the Old Testament. How has God revealed his own character to his people many, many times? We read Psalm 23 this morning for our call to worship. God is our shepherd. Peter has to go here theologically or biblically to put it in that regard. God being the shepherd, his people being like sheep, is a very consistent message through all of Scripture. From Psalm 23 or Genesis 48 about God to Jesus when he stood before the people in John 10 and he said, I'm the good shepherd. I'm not like a hired hand looking after God's own flock. I am the good shepherd. I will lay my life down for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice and they come to me and all the sheep the Father has given to me, no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is the image of the Bible. Peter has to go here theologically. All the promises in the scripture of a good shepherd king. A.J. read earlier from Ezekiel 34 where there's this indictment against the shepherds of Israel. You've fattened yourself. You've fed yourself. You've abused your role and you've hurt the people. They're scattered everywhere and no one's going to chase after them because you could care less about them. You just care about yourself. So I, the Lord says, I will, I will seek after them. I'll raise up a shepherd like me. All the Bible is giving words about God being the shepherd who's going to send shepherds to tend his people and Jesus himself being the good shepherd. So it's not just Peter who leans into this. The Apostle Paul, when he says goodbye to the elders in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, same exact image. He looks at those elders and he says to them, pay close attention to yourself and pay close attention to all the flock which he has made you overseer to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. And Paul says, I know that after me, fierce wolves are going to come in among the sheep. It's your job to protect them. So Peter has to go here personally because of his experience with the resurrected Christ, giving him a, a, a path of life that he's been on. So he's going to go here for us. He has to go here practically because as leaders go, so go the, go the people they lead. And he has to go here theologically because this is the picture that God has given to his church about his kind of care and who we are. So I just want to emphasize those are some of the why Peter goes here before we even look at what he has to say. But let's look at what he has to say. So in verses 1 through 4, he has very direct words to scattered or called church Elders, scattered is a word I'm putting in there for just an outline. Hopefully it'll help. Because understand, this is a letter Peter's written to sojourners scattered across Asia Minor. Christians who don't have a home, placeless people. And in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11, we, and we've emphasized it the last few Sundays, as well as in our deacon nominee training, God's ordained everything. Everything, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. Everything that comes to pass, he has brought to pass. So if you're an elder here, or I'm called to be a pastor here. If you're a pastor here, 
You've been sent to scattered people. So in a way, we've been scattered to this very local place where God wants scattered sheep to be gathered. Peter's not going to write his letter to the scattered church and just leave all of his commentary to them in a sort of a vague sense as though they're just going to try to apply all the words about the living hope inside of them in their own life, in their own family, wherever they may end up. No, God's intent is for leaders to also be sent to those scattered people and those scattered leaders sent out on mission are called to be the means by which God gathers those people in relationship. I think of Epaphras. Do you remember going through the book of Colossians? Epaphras went to Athens and heard the Apostle Paul defend the gospel. And Paul ends up writing a letter to Epaphras later, but picture this young convert who's convinced and convicted of the truths of the gospel. And he goes to Paul and says, what do I do? And Paul says, go back home and tell people what you've heard about the resurrection of Jesus. So Epaphras goes back home to Colossa, to this, this rural place, and he starts to share the truth of what he heard. What's God going to do when that happens? Start to gather people together who connect to the doctrines of the resurrection of Jesus and their identity in Christ. What happens in the midst of that? Well, people start pushing against Epaphras and saying, you know, you're not really giving all the truth. There's more truth than what you're saying. You need to add a few things to the gospel. So Epaphras writes letters to Paul, who's in prison, and says, what do I tell him? And Paul says, stick to the truth that you know. So now what is Epaphras suddenly? He's a sent pastor to a gathered group of scattered people. This is the way God works all across the world, all across history. So to you elders who God has scattered here, shepherd the flock that is among you. That is your primary task and calling. What does this look like? Well, he's got three descriptions here. Exercising oversight, having spiritual authority. That's the Greek word episkopos. And just so you are aware, you know, bishop, episcopal, presbyterian, presbyteros, those are all Greek terms. And I believe, and the tradition that we're in, believe that those are different descriptions for the same office, the office of elder. So right here, you actually have a letter, a word to elders, but it uses the word episkopos in the midst of the description of an elder of the kind of oversight that you have. What is this oversight to look like? Well, it looks like shepherding a flock. What do shepherds do for their flock? Tim Whitmer's book, The Shepherd Leader, has four things. Shepherds know, feed, lead, and protect the flock under their care. Know, feed, lead, and protect. If you're a father or a husband, that's your marching order from God as well. In the home that you're called to be the shepherd, you know, you feed, you lead, you protect. It's just what shepherds do, okay? How do we do that in the church? Well, we do that by giving God's people the truth of the gospel that's revealed to us in his word. We do so with declarative authority only. If you've heard that statement before. Ecclesiastical, church authority only. We don't have any authority in the culture outside the church and we can't do anything to force anyone to do or believe anything. All we can do is declare the truth of the gospel authoritatively. This is your job as an elder to exercise oversight by declaring God's word as it's interpreted through the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people whom God is calling to himself. I want you to think with me about how those four roles of a shepherd, to, to know, to feed, to lead, to protect, they are all integrally connected to the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. If, if you're a, a sheep, how are you supposed to know who you are and how am I supposed to know you? 
by reminding you who you are in Christ and by you revealing your struggle with sin and us looking at how repentance and faith gives us the identity God's given us in Christ. So we know each other through the gospel. We feed one another with the gospel. We look at the whole counsel of God's word, but it must be applied very clearly to to Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of all the scriptures for us. So we feed the flock through the gospel. We lead them from all the divergent views of the world around us of what it means to be happy or what it means to be a good family or what it means to be pretty and beautiful. Take all those different bajillion thoughts as to where life should go and head. And we say, no, we're called to lead you to have a living hope inside of you of the inheritance God's keeping you for through the work of Jesus that's done. So even leading is about the simple gospel and finally protecting When we know among the flock of God that someone is starting to believe or profess or declare anything that's contrary to the pure gospel of Jesus, elders are called with spiritual authority to call it out. So where legalism cloaks itself as a message of hope in the gospel, elders are called to say, the law cannot give life. All the law can do is convict of sin and sinners need to run to the one who fulfilled the law for us, who also suffered the curse of your breaking the law. There is no hope or life in law, but the law is integral to you understanding where hope is found. And you're called to obey the law. You're called to obey the law because God's holiness does not change. But your aiming to obey it will never save you because you can't meet it. Jesus did for you. That's an example of protecting the flock from just aberrations of doctrine. Elders, it is your calling and job to exercise spiritual oversight. And I will just say, if you don't hold the gospel close, it will crush you, elder. It will absolutely crush you. And if you listen to the testimony I shared, that was just one of the comments I was making of, oh, I have known the crushing oppression of not being a good enough pastor to my own family, let alone to the church I'm called to. So it makes sense when Paul the Apostle says in Philippians 3, I don't want to be found with any form of righteousness of my own that comes from my performance. I want to be found with the righteousness that comes from God that was given in Jesus. And if I can do anything then to know that righteousness, I'll share in his sufferings. I want to know his resurrection because that's where my identity is found. And if you're an elder, a leader in Christ's church, you will be crushed by this burden if you are not finding your own identity in the gospel. Also, the gospel equips you though. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, not that any of us are sufficient for these things, but we've been made competent by the spirit that's in us. So as you all know, to be a pastor, in in our context, you go to seminary for three and a half years or whatever the case may be, and you get a degree and you sit and read a lot of books, study some languages. But you know what? That has not made anyone competent to be a minister of the gospel in moments of pain, anger, hatred, abuse, sorrow, struggle, unreconciled sin. What makes you competent is the Holy Spirit put in you in those moments of dependence on him because you're a shepherd and he sent you into that place. I hope you know that, elders. It's hard and it can be oppressive. Paul knows it can be oppressive, so he actually says to us, so you don't do this under compulsion. You're not forced to do this, which is a weird thought. Maybe some of the elders in the early church were kind of shoved into that role because they appeared to be the most mature. It was an early church within one generation of Jesus' death and resurrection. Maybe they were actually forced. You should take this job. Voluntold. But I would also say that ministry, Paul knows it, Peter knows it, excuse me, can be so self-oppressive. You know, sheep critique shepherds. Did you know that? 
Did you know that pastors know their own immaturities more than anybody that's in their own congregation? Do you know that ministers of the gospel end up in situations that they sit there and they know I am completely not ready for this? Tragedies. I'm not holy enough. I'm not ready enough. There's no book about this. Oh, I read a book and I wish I never would have. Ministry can be so oppressive and Paul makes the word to elders, I mean Peter, excuse me, says the word clear to elders, you're not forced to do this. You're free in Christ, Galatians 5. For freedom Christ has set you free. Don't be enslaved to anything, not even the calling God's put over you. So elders, officers in this church, hear me say this. You're not stuck. You're not stuck. That's a horrible angle from which to do ministry. I'm stuck here. You're not stuck. You're free in the role God's called you to in the place he scattered you to have spiritual oversight where you are needed, representing the shepherd, the chief shepherd, as an under-shepherd. This could take too long. Let me keep going. I'm sorry. And not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Interestingly, the word for shameful gain is actually connected to a misappro- the, 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 the verb you use there, a misappropriation of, of resources for one's own personal gain. It does have a lot to do with finances here, but also just the pride, the celebrity pastor culture in which we live in, ministers of the gospel. It is anathema to our calling to be in the middle of ministry and be benefiting from it either in your pride or in your pocketbook as though that's the reason you have that, that calling. And I want you to know I've been in ministry 20 years now. I can't tell you how many people have joked that I do nothing for a job. Right? Pastor, you do nothing. You, just, you have a nice little cozy life compared to the rest of us that have a job that we have to go to work at a certain time. We have deadlines. We have obligations. Your life must be really easy. And you get paid for it. No. Minister of the gospel, you are not to be pursuing ministry for the gain of other people caring for you while you have a very free life or from the gain of being needed by others and the popularity that can come from it. No, there should be, that's just anathema to the gospel. No shameful gain. You're called to serve eagerly. That means not with fear. That means not avoiding trial. That means like a firefighter running into dark places. Running in and doing so as a called servant of of the chief shepherd even when ministry is hard and people are broken and, and corruption is extensive and people are critical and there is manipulation and then people will evaluate what you do after you do it. You're called to still do it eagerly. Thirdly, he says, shepherding looks like not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Let me be honest with you. I guess I can be a domineering personality, but the other side of domineering is being weak and afraid all the time. We're not called to that either. But domineering is saying, I'm in ministry for the power. And I can be harsh like a husband who says, I have power and authority, I'm in control here. No, we are all called to be stewards who serve like Jesus. So there is no authority given to you, shepherd of God, if you're an elder in Christ's church, but the authority that you're called to declare that Jesus is the one who's the chief shepherd. And then he says, but being examples to the flock. Examples of what? Examples of Jesus, the chief shepherd. I think also examples of what it looks like to be a humble sheep who needs a shepherd who repents of their sin, who doesn't always get it right, who doesn't isolate, 
An example of that just the same. These are very heavy words to an elder, to a shepherd, but there's a promise connected to it. And before we move on, I want, to, I want you to see the promise. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is a fascinating description. So in the Greek, the adjective for unfading is, is amaranthanon, from which the amaranth flower with a red blossom kind of gets, it, it's describing that flower. That flower has a rose, a, a colored of, of, of blossom that just never fades. It would be the blossom that would be put on a wreath for an Olympian or someone that was a competing in athletic games. In the days in which Peter would write, this wreath would often be uh, redone in gold and laid around the neck of a civil servant who had also competed well. It's the same description here, this, this crown, this wreath of glory. Well, what is this crown that a shepherd on earth can expect? Well, the Bible calls it a crown of glory. What did Jesus pray in John 17 to the Father about those who would follow after him? He says, Father, I want you to give them the glory that I've had with you from eternity. So I think the crown here, honestly is the glory of the Son, the glory of God, known and shared by the servants of God. But what does a servant of God do with that crown of glory in the end? I love the Bible, how it all fits together. Revelation chapter 4, verse 10. What do the 24 elders do when they see the Lamb? They take off their crown of glory and they lay it at his feet. That's a glorious picture of even when God glorifies his own saints who serve his people, who represent him as the chief shepherd, in the end, who gets all the glory? The chief shepherd, who is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So let me close up this part, and then there's just a, a verse or so for the rest of us. A word to the session of elders at Christ Community Church. A word to elders in Christ Church universally. I believe you have been scattered here period. You've been called here to serve as a shepherd that represents the chief shepherd. You are in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, more than you are in leadership. You have freedom in Christ, and this is not something that should enslave you. You are equipped to do this. You've been made competent by the gospel that holds you to do this. You are being preserved and held by the chief shepherd who has kept and is keeping an inheritance for you. It's not about you, though. The scripture's picture is a plurality of leadership. So you are one of many because there's only one shepherd, and it's Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd. And you will receive a faithful crown of glory that you will eagerly throw right back at the feet of him who alone deserves glory. That's what Peter says to shepherds. Let's go a little bit further, much more briefly. Peter's not done speaking. So in verse 5, he has a word for gathered or local church members. Why do I use the word gathered? Well, God scatters church elders to gather his scattered sheep, if you will. Gathered in a community. So just like Paul said to Titus, he says to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, to appoint elders in every town where I send you. So picture one church at first in each town, and Titus had the calling from the Apostle Paul to appoint elders, plural, for that faith community in that town. And so we believe in a plurality of elders 
Every little church has elders, should have elders gathered by God, representing the chief shepherd who's Jesus. That means that you, Christ Community Church members, are a local gathering of sheep. God knows your life would be scattered, but he wants us gathered in community. And in, in a little bit more clear words, you may think or feel that you chose this place to be your church home, but that would be incorrect theologically. God chose this place for you. You may think, and people often think, that I can just stop attending that church and go to that church. I'm free to choose. There's a church right down the road. Unfortunately, that's the landscape in which we live, but that is not God's design for his sheep. God is sovereign. He brings you to a local church, and if that local church body is not visibly violating God's holy word, and if that group of leaders at that local church are are willing to repent when they're shown error, then you are called to be gathered in that place and to participate as the leaders of that church would show you the pathway of maturity in Christ for that community. And your leaders will have to give an account. Hebrews 13 says that directly. But Peter goes to the realm of the church attendee. Now, if you see in your outline, I use the word member. I don't like that word. Just thought I'd tell you, I don't like that word, but I use it on purpose in this outline. Because the word member may sound like we're a member of a club. That is not the way that I want you to think about it. Ephesians 2.19, Paul says that we are members of the household of God. I know that when he says members of the household of God, he's not describing members inside of this building. He's describing members of the house that God is building, his people, which is the building. I understand that. Why do I use that word? Well, listen, please, if you will. I'm acknowledging that God has gathered you to be a part of a community under Christ the shepherd and he's appointed leaders to shepherd that local community. We have a lot of visitors here. It's a transitory place. We've seen God, thankfully, choose to grow this church over the last three years. There have been a lot of people come and go. At what point do the elders that God has placed in this this community, at what point do they know they're responsible before God to be seeking after and shepherding local church attendees? Is it after that person's visited two Sundays? We know sheep jump around. Is it after that person said, I'm going to go to a community group once? At what point... In our fluid culture, do the elders in a local community say, we are called to shepherd that family and that individual with the intention and the responsibility of those who are going to give an account? Who are we called to eagerly pursue? I would say to you that the way our denomination looks at it and the way your elders look at it is those who have covenanted to be members, to be a part of the local gathered group of scattered sojourners, those who've covenanted to be members there's an obligation before God that our elders know that we have. And so Peter has a word to those who are under the authority of the elders God's put in place. He says, likewise, you, you're under the chief shepherd. He's got something for everyone here, but he starts out with those who are younger. Likewise, those who are younger, and he calls them to humility. Why does he use the word younger? Well, it's interesting because I don't know he's necessarily talking about age, but he does use a word that's pretty clearly about age, those who are younger. So there's, there's a developing leadership structure in the local churches to whom Peter's writing. And you probably have a situation in which those who are appointed earliest in the realm and role of elder are those who had a little bit more age, had a little bit more maturity, and so they were the ones who were put in that position first by God's design. Now, who are often the most eager people to press up against authority or press up against direction? It's often those who want it. And I'm really close and I could and I want it. And so Peter has a word to those who are younger saying, 
show humility and submit to the leadership that God's put in place. But it's not just like an isolated group of younger individuals. It's to all the people in a local church. You see that. All of you clothe yourself in humility. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's Proverbs 3. When the scriptures here say clothe yourself with humility, just so you know, it's donning the apron of a servant. That's what you're supposed to do. Put the apron on of a servant, all of you. Shepherds and sheep. And just like that, we have this gorgeous description in a world of entitlement and pride of the people of God who have humble leaders who would rather deflect any glory and point to Jesus the chief shepherd with humble sheep who say, I don't have to run the roost here. I can be under another's authority just like I'm under Jesus' authority. Even imperfect shepherds. Humility in shepherding and humility in being a, a sheep. That's the picture. Humility means, and I'm going to be direct, it's an awkward sermon to do so as your pastor because this is a great church. Y'all have been good. But I've seen it go sideways faster than you can say boo or bah. Humility means not sitting over your church leaders in criticism. It would be of no benefit to you. Hebrews chapter 13. Humility means not being divisive over which church leader you will follow, says all the people who are in the first Corinthian church if they listen to the words of the apostle Paul. Humility means not forgetting your leaders are sinners and in need of a chief shepherd themselves. Humility means not assuming your need is more important than others in the body as the shepherds are trying to figure out who needs to be chased and we can only chase at a, at a level in which we have capacity that God's given and it's an overwhelming burden at times. Humility means not church shopping unless biblically warranted to do so. If a church is giving into theological error, if a church refuses to practice church discipline, those are reasons to exit a church. But first, there are reasons to go to the elders of that church and talk graciously about what is being seen and what is heard that may be out of conformity to the scriptures. I'll never forget a friend in Pennsylvania. They showed up, and they weren't friends yet. They showed up, and all of a sudden, you had this very mature family in the way they were listening to sermons and tracking along. They had kids who were in high school and college age. They sat, came near the front, they sat, ended up going to coffee and meals and got to know this individual and went, man, there's a maturity here. Come to find out he'd been an elder at a different church, not in our denomination. Brother, why are you leaving the church you're at? That church is a healthy church that's declaring the gospel. It's actually got a great ministry among this community. Why would you come to our little church plant? It's also a reformed con congregation, so you're not coming for theological reasons. Why, why are you here? He said, funny thing. Over the last six months, my family has really struggled to see that the word of God is making even sense to my children and my wife and I. And we've been at that church for 15 years. Same preacher. It's just not connecting. So we thought the problem was us. So we realized we were sitting in the back and we moved and we started sitting in the front of a church. We started reading the text as a family before the pastor would preach and praying, God, it seems like there's a disconnect. What's going on? Are you calling us to someplace else? We want to do the easy thing, which is just to leave, but we're not. We're going to sit here. We're going to track. And so they did. Three months pass, and they're just struggling as a family. He's an elder. So he shares with his elders, guys, I just want you to know, I don't know what's going on, but I feel disconnected, and it's not anything anyone else has done. Would you pray for my family? Now the elders are praying. They sit with the pastor. And they say, it's, we don't think it's you. 
Something's going on inside of us. And do you know what happened and why they ended up at our church? Because their pastor and their elders and that family believed God was sending them to another church to live on mission because they'd fulfilled their role at that congregation. Do you know how else that story could have gone? And so they showed up at our church plant in Pennsylvania and you had the most beautiful, ready-made family to serve who'd lived with humility. So when I picked up the phone to a friend I already knew who was a pastor of another church and said, did you know one of your elders is visiting our church every week? He said, yes, I do. And I hope they'll stay. And if you want to talk to me further about the gifts they have that they may not even realize they have, I'd love to tell you. Humbly stay, humbly wrestle, and maybe you'll be humbly sent on. But humility is the picture that should imbibe a local gathering of God's people. All right, I'm going to close up for time's sake. Let me read this quote to you, and that's how I'll do so. I've been praying all week long, Christ Community Church, that we will be this kind of a people. Come hell or high water, this will be a church that's united in the gospel, united to one another, chases after each other. It's a joy and a delight for every elder or deacon to serve in this congregation, even though we get into the weeds of pain. Listen to this quote. The precarious situation of Peter's readers, his first readers, demanded the leadership of courageous and competent elders who would shepherd the flock of God in a way that could maintain social cohesion and commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ in light of all the suffering they faced as a church. What you need here courageous and competent elders who are not afraid of having their own sin found out because Jesus covers it, who aren't afraid of pastoring people because they've covenanted to do so to see Jesus together. I want to just ask you to pray for that this week. Pray for courageous and competent shepherds and that Christ community will come out of this COVID-19 separation with as zealous of church leaders who love the flock as much as they love Jesus as is possible. It would be for your good and it will be for God's glory. Thank you, let me pray. Father, would you be glorified as we ask for this picture to be lived out in this church? Hear us now as we pray to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.